Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Transplant's Take on Sport. My name's Lewis Daniels and my guest today is kidney transplant recipient and international footballer, cricketer, volleyball player and 10-pin bowler Stephen Harrison. In this episode we discuss expressing gratitude towards donors, the mental benefit of transplant sport, some of Steve's incredible sporting achievements and much much more. Please do stick around for what is a fascinating listen and if you enjoy the podcast please subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. I was on his radio show for Halloween, but now the roles have been reversed. Stephen Harrison, welcome to Transplant's Take on Sport. Good afternoon, Lewis. Good to be on board. Uh, Thanks for coming on. You get to do all the the asking other questions, I just get to sit here. (laughs) (laughs) Looking forward to it. You're the first guest, so anything could happen. The first question I had, this this year, since March, we've both had kidney transplants, which we're going to come on to very soon. But since March, we've been part of what's been called the Clinically Extremely Vulnerable Group or the Shielders, however people want to say it, as we're the most or one of the most at-risk groups to coronavirus. So how has lockdown been for you, this sort of on and off lockdown year? Uh, The first lockdown was fine. I actually quite enjoyed it, to be honest. I was very lucky that uh, the company I worked for, they did put me on furlough, but the company were great and they paid me full wage. So I I did really have a holiday. Uh, But of course, I couldn't go anywhere. So, you know, the company's been fantastic. Um, I work from home now. My job's based on site a lot, but uh, since the first lockdown ended and furlough ended, I've been working from home. Can't really ask for much more. No, definitely not. And then the second lockdown kicked in, and I think that sort of uh, tipped me over the edge a bit, shall we say, mentally. It wasn't great. And I think what happened was with the first one, it did go on a long time. Um, But we had the nice summer. You know, I was in that very lucky position. A lot of people weren't where I was basically on holiday. Uh, but with the second lockdown, you know, I just got back into playing football. I was doing my radio show, as you mentioned previously. Um, and then, of course, the four-week 
shielding came in again, the second lockdown, and all that stopped. Um, and then I got a bit of a chest infection as well, which hasn't helped, but I'm all right now. So, But uh, it wasn't COVID. I have had a COVID test. I, I'm negative. Um, You're all safe. <laughs> oh, I'm safe, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think the first one was, it was strange. I think one of uh, my transplant friends, uh, the intendant from the Liverpool team, he put a post on Facebook and he said, it's very strange in the first lockdown, being, once you've had a transplant, being told you're extremely vulnerable clinically, where really you feel the best you've felt for years. You know, you don't feel vulnerable. You don't feel clinically vulnerable because you're getting on with your life better than you could before you transplant. So to be told you can't go out because you're vulnerable, which I personally fully agreed with and understood the reasons why, Same. Uh, it was quite strange, you know. So, it's been challenging for us all mentally, physically yeah. even. Aside from you working from home, what sort of things got you through those two lockdowns? Uh, my wife. She's been a great support. Um, she's been stuck at home as well. She works from home as well now. So, you know, we have two offices actually. I have an office that I'm in now, which is downstairs, and she has one of the spare rooms converted into office. So we have... Uh, an office each <laughs> we're not under each other's feet when we're working so which works because we work very differently and somebody who always has to have music playing in the background to concentrate she needs complete silence uh and also our dog iggy we got um he's a labradoodle we got him in january as a pup um, right. and you know the fact we've had him through lockdown has really really helped so it's an excuse to get out of the house it's an excuse to get out of the house. I mean, when the first lockdown was on, Amanda took him for the walks. And then when they started to relax things a bit and told us we would, you know, when they gave us an end date where we'd be allowed out, I started taking him out sort of after dark when there was nobody about. I'm very lucky where I live. The neighbours all know I've had a transplant. They're very uh, respectful of that. So, you know, I've always felt very safe. I must admit where I live, I have felt safe pretty much all the time. And of course, you know, and it was it was strange because we were in lockdown. There was all this craziness going on in the world of you know. And I'm just coming back with these horror stories of trying to shop and people being not very nice, and you know, and it being very strange and very tense out there. And we were just I was just sat at home. So I like, <laughs> you know, I'd see it on the television. I knew what people said. And then by the time we were allowed out, I was like, "Don't see what the fuss was about, really." But. <laughs> we're going to be a bit. We might be a bit strange when we get back into the real world. We're not being out for so long. It was. Um, I went to the. I, went, I said I was actually quite um, excited to be going to Asda. <laughs> so not been for about five months or whatever. <laughs> very strange. Very strange. So the world changes. The, the first lockdown, I became very good at FIFA and watched only fools and horses from start to finish. So Fantastic. productive. Yeah, I think I completed Netflix. Can I ask that next? <laughs> so. Away from lockdown, uh, the reason we were stuck inside for a long time, uh, the fact that we both had kidney transplants. So when was yours? My transplant was in 2016. It was in May 2016. Um, it was a cadaverous donor, so I don't know my donor. And I was diagnosed with something called FSGS, secondary to kidney failure, which is fecal segmental glomerular nephritis. I've heard a bit about that. Um, so it's, it's chronic kidney failure. I was diagnosed at 18 and then I had a transplant when I was 40 something, four, 
2016, don't worry. 43 I was. So got it's getting that long ago. Oh, I had to use more than two two hands then for working it out. So yeah, so I mean I had I was sort of very textbook with my decline. It was very I mean you hear some stories about you know, one day they're all right, next day they're on dialysis. And I've never had that. I never had dialysis. Um, I, I got down to eight percent and had a transplant. I played football on the Monday night. And on the Thursday, I had a transplant. I did play in goal, and at the end of it, I felt like I'd run a marathon backwards gonna... whilst carrying a 10-ton weight or something. But <laughs> I felt I actually rang Amanda and said, I'm going to have to give up. I just can't do it anymore. And I thought I was very upset. And then on the Thursday, I got my transplant. So, Speaking of football, yes. we were going to come on to that later, but as you've mentioned it, saying you're a goalkeeper, I, know I played football from the age of about five up until... 20 when I had my transplant but that I was a midfielder but that last year sort of you're getting further and further towards failure I was struggling yeah. to run up and down the pitch do you think being mm. a goalkeeper prolonged your playing time it did because really I'm a defender um and I went in I've always I've always liked playing in goal but I'm quite a good goalkeeper but I prefer to play in defense because you get yeah. more of the ball and you know Goalkeeper's that thankless position. You make a cracking save. There might people might go, yeah, brilliant save, Steve. And then they don't mention it again. You know, somebody scores a hat-trick, you're never at the end of it, or a 30-yard <laughs> half-volley, and you're everybody's talking about it. Goalkeeper makes a save, it's expected. You let three or four in, and it's always your fault whether it is or it isn't. So, you know, it's a bit of a thankless task being a keeper. But for me, that's how I carried on playing. And I, I was playing five-side, and the lads I played with all knew my position. They were really good. So I'd come out of goal for five minutes and then when I looked like I was about to drop <laughs> drop dead on them, they go, Steve, go back in goal. So I'd go back in goal for a bit. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was playing two or three times a week in goal. And it was getting hard. I could, you know, it's that thing, you don't realise how ill you are until you've had your transplant, I think. Exactly. And I definitely did not realise how ill I was. But, you know, I was coming off a football pitch like I'd done a full 90 minutes just running up and down. And I'd been in a five-side goal, so I'd not really even moved out my area, you know. Um, so it did definitely prolong it, yes. But the first, as soon as I came, as soon as I had my transplant, I could start playing again. I was back in defence. I have to now. But I will put them on. I quite enjoy it, really. But don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to the the transplant itself, and the, you said you had a cadaveric donor. Yes. How long were you actually on the waiting list for? 39 days. Wow. <laughs> I, went, um, I think it was the, yeah, I mean, my story is rubbish, really, to be fair. <laughs> it's like, if you want to promote own donation, I'm not the person for it, because it sounds like it's just very simple, and it obviously isn't. It wasn't for me, but it definitely isn't for other people. I mean, the people that are waiting years and years and years, and I think it was about the 19th of April I went on the list, 17th, 19th of April, and I had it on the 26th of May. So, <laughs> quick turnaround. So it was a quick turnaround. And, you know, like when you get the call, it's that thing of, oh, right, okay. In fact, the strange thing about that is when I got the call was my sister had um, offered to be a live donor. And she just had that first round of tests to see whether she was a match. And she messaged me in the morning to say she was a match. And then at lunchtime, I got a phone call from the hospital. And they said, we've got a kidney for you. And I thought they were talking about my sister. <laughs> So I was like, yeah, I know. They were like, why be so relaxed about this? Like, yeah, sure, <laughs> no, no, we're going now. I was like, oh, <laughs> can you get here within an hour? I was like, uh, yeah, I'm on B-Way. So, so that maybe you down a bit. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's good. Do you think you were emotionally prepared with it being such a short wait? It helped. So I didn't have time. Not to enough think time about to think. It. Yeah, didn't have time to think about it. I didn't. I mean, I was doing that thing where I was still occasionally forgetting to pick my phone up, and you know. They say that thing, don't they? Since you're on the list, you have to keep your phone fully charged and on your yeah. own times. And I'd be like, I'd have it on, switch it off at night or put it on silent at night and, you know, just not really expecting it. And there is that thing. I mean, I know, um, I think it was I was talking to, but somebody they knew had got the call on the way home <laughs> you know, from being wow. going having the appointment to put them on the list. It can be that quick. You know, it's very, very rare. And, you know, uh, I know the uh, average waiting time is still about three years, isn't it? It's... It's not good. A long so, time. But, uh, it's a long time. But uh, yes, uh, I think, you know, and again, that thing when you go in, you know, you, I was given an hour to get there. You get there, you rock up. They basically sort of tag you up and take start taking blood out of you and all sorts, send you off for x-rays and stuff. And you just have time to think about it because it's all, right, you need to go and do this now. Right, you need to go and do that now. Right, you need to go and do like, right, okay. And you just go, you know, it's like, right, he's going out to X-Ray. Do you know where you're going? Yeah, yeah, fine. Right, off you go. Give me a form, off a walk, you know. And the weird thing was, I'd just been and had my hair cut. So I was looking quite smart. And I'd made, you know, when you feel ill, you really make the effort to get dressed up because you're just trying to make yourself feel better. So I was like, getting my hair cut, I'd uh, put a nice shirt on, decent pair of, you know, rather than my scruffs I've been sort of slobbing round in. And uh, so when I went down to, you know, if you had a bank for tests and stuff, they're going, are you in the right department? <laughs> Because he's like, outpatients are there. No, no, I'm an inpatient. Look, and I've got my tags on, you know. So, oh, right. So I'm having a kidney transplant. Oh, you're right. Okay. So it was like, I think I surprised everybody at the hospital. They were like, you shouldn't be here. You should be in the other department. No, no, I am. I'm an inmate. Let me in. <laughs> uh, and it was just all so quick. It was, it was amazing. It was amazing. I had a similar sort of experience. I had my hair cut, I think, a couple of days before going in for my transplant. My mum donated, which I might come on to mm. in further episodes but uh we're on the ward and i was approached as the presumed donor which is yeah. sort of a strange feeling because you looked healthy i suppose so i was 20 and otherwise fit and well just struggled to run yeah. more than sort of 100 meters or to the boundary in cricket and back yeah i oh, don't do boundaries <laughs> <laughs> Batting or fielding, to be fair. <laughs> That's another subject. <laughs> so after your transplant, once you'd had it, you say it was so quick the first, yeah. from the call to actually having it done. Was there that moment of realisation afterwards where you thought, I've just had my life saved by the unfortunate timing of somebody yes. else's death? That, was, that took a long time to get my head round. It's a strange... And it's a strange thing because I don't feel, I don't get squeamish. I'm not, things like that don't bother me. But, you know, the fact you've got some, you know, I read once things you learn when you have a kidney transplant about your life, that somebody who's dead is better at keeping you alive than you are. You know, yeah. I was like, yeah, I see that now. And I, you get that. And that didn't bother me, the fact that what I've got in me is a kidney from somebody else. That doesn't bother me in the slightest. The fact that um, my donor passed away, so I could have the kidney. I mean, I know they're going to pass away anyway. But the fact they'd done that thing of signing the register and the donor register, it took a lot of getting my head around. And you do have that. I'm not a religious person in the slightest, but you do have that thing of why me? Yeah. 
you know, why have they died and I've not? I'm ill. Why did I not die? Why did somebody healthy pass away? Which they do. Unfortunately, people die all the time, don't they? This is the only certainty in life is you're going to die, unfortunately. So it did take a while to get my head around um, getting used to the fact that somebody had passed away. Uh, and my wife was a bit, well, yeah, but they were going to die anywhere, and this, that, and the other. And then we watched the, I don't know if you saw it yourself, the documentary where they were at the Royal Liverpool. I couldn't watch it. Uh, couldn't you? I was I was fine, but then, you know, you get to a point every time and stuff like that, and I'll just start crying, you know, uh, quite openly. I, I mean, I had my transplant lead, so it wasn't as personal as it would be for you, because you yeah. were at Liverpool, didn't you? So it was, it's more personal for you, guess being the actual hospital as well. Um, but one of the, Patients on there said the same as I've been saying, and then meeting transplant friends of mine, Amanda talking to transplant friends of mine, they all say the same thing. And I said, see, it's not me. It's not that we're not grateful because we are, you can't describe how grateful you are for this gift. You just really cannot put into words how, I cannot put into words how grateful I am to receive this kidney, you know. Um, But it is, it does take a while to get your head around. And then, you know, you just feel you've got to... I, I just feel I have to be at my best all the time. Yeah, that makes sense. And if I don't feel I can or I don't feel my best is enough, I get quite down about it. And that took a while to get my head around and a bit of counselling and, you know, a lot of talking. And We're getting there now. We're getting there. I, I struggle to say how grateful I am for it. And mine came from my mum, who's yeah still still here yeah so for you it must have been a new level of sort of uh emotional processes thoughts and getting your head around it yeah it it is it's difficult to describe it really is yeah i think it's one of those unique things isn't it unless you've been through it you wouldn't understand you can't you just can't understand how you know how it's going to make you feel so yeah, I mean, if you've had a live donor, I guess you've got that option. You can always say thank you to them on a daily basis, physically, you know, mm. or by text or, you know, you can, whereas I can't because they're gone and I will never, ever know them. You know, personally, I will never know them. So it is a strange, it is a strange uh, situation. But as I say, it's one that I can't describe how grateful I am. even though you don't know the donor have -hmm. you done what a lot of people do and been in contact with the family i've not been in contact with my family yet is that something you Uh, plan to do yes it's something i've planned since the day i had my transplant to do and i've written the letter several times um and it just, again, it's that thing of it just doesn't feel anything I put in words feels enough. Yeah, I understand. You know, um, I will do, I will get it sent off and I'll do it relatively soon, to be honest. Um, I think I'm, I think myself, mentally, I'm in the right place to do that as well now. Whereas I think, you know, previously, I don't know if I was in the right place to be able to write it, which sounds a bit selfish, which it is. But, you know... I didn't feel I could do it justice because I wasn't in the right place mentally myself. Whereas I feel yeah, now I could 
quite happily write it and send it and hopefully get a response. I would love to hear from my donor family and find out a bit about my donor. But again, at the same time, if I was never to hear from them, that's absolutely fine as well. So you know how grateful you are. And mm-hmm. Expressing it is maybe more difficult. Yes, very much so. I think I need to invent a new word, to be fair. <laughs> it's kind of a new word for how grateful transport recipients are. Answers on a postcard. <laughs> so moving on to after your transplant. Yes. Uh, how how does your life compare before and after? How much better have you realised you are afterwards? Uh, as, as I said before, you don't realise how ill you are until you have your transplant. And it's and it wakes up and kicks in and you know once you get out of hospital I think and you get through those first couple of weeks of appointments where the pain starts to ease and you start to get a bit more normal and you know everything kicks in and you suddenly sort of realise you know I think the thing I realised was that I'm just generally unfit unfortunately <laughs> I, was like, I always blamed trans- I always blamed uh, kidney failure for not being able to do stuff and afterwards I was just like well perhaps it's the fact I'm now a middle aged bloke who's not trained properly for 20 odd years <laughs> Um, yeah, it changed again. It changed just so much. Um, you know, my wife said when I came back up to the ward, you know, my eyes were so much clearer. They were like a grey before, and then they were quite a brilliant blue when they came back up to the ward. And I said, just looking round, I said it felt like you. I was seeing the world in high definition for the first time. Everything just it's just mad. Um, so things like, you know, I mean, little things like being able to run around the garden with my grandchildren rather than granddad's tired. Can he sit down five? I mean, granddad does get tired now, but he has to carry on, but you know, you know, things like that, being able to play out in the garden with the kids and, you know, take up the sport again and things like being able to work because I hadn't worked for five months when I had my transplant. And as soon as I took the 12 weeks that they sort of sign you off as standard. I know a lot of people have gone back to work earlier because they just want to get back to work, especially those that self-employed. But I, because I wasn't working, I took the 12 weeks uh, quite happily. But as soon as the 12 weeks up, I actually started a job the day it finished, you know. So it was just great to get back out there. And then, you know, moving on from that, being able to get a bit fitter and do sports and all the experiences I've had with that, with transplant sport, you know. You mentioned this, we'll, we'll come up to the sport, now, did you manage to get back to doing the sports with a couple of the dancers I know, but for the for the listeners, have you managed to get back to doing the sports that you were doing before your transplant? Yes, and more. Yes, I mean, before, immediately before my transplant, I was only playing football. Uh, when I was younger, I did play a bit of cricket and other sports as well as football. But football's always been my main sport. Uh, I mean, since, uh, since my transplant, I'm... I play football, I play cricket for two teams, not including the transplant teams, so three teams. Um, I play volleyball. Uh, I keep attempting to do couch to 5K and get actually get fit, but I keep managing to get injured. So I mean, it's never tested. It, it's weird. I, I sort of see this couch to 5K thing as a brilliant thing, and I've seen so many success stories with it, but I've never completed it because I always end up injured halfway through. Not usually. <laughs> Usually because of the other sports I'm doing, not because of the couch to 5K itself. So I'll go to football and I'll, you know, twist my ankle or whatever, and then that's however many weeks out. And then you start again because you're unfit again and you have to. So, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm doing so much more 
than I could previously. If only there was a way to mix couch to 5k with football, cricket, volleyball. Yeah, if I could do it, try juggling a football, but my keeper just gave an awful that's why I'm a central defender or a goalkeeper. Get the ball, get rid of the ball, that's my job. <laughs> Classic centre-back. Yeah, have it. <laughs> <laughs> So we'll we'll go through all your sports one by one. We'll start with football. Okay. You said you're playing transplant football. You actually got me involved. Yeah. I haven't yeah. actually played a game yet or trained because of recovering <laughs> from the transplant and the pandemic. Yeah. But you play transplant football for Liverpool Transplant Football Club. I do. I do, one yes. Thing, go on. One thing that I, I still don't know because I haven't been yet, um, the difference between regular football and transplant football how are the rules adapted to make it safer for people like us who've got a kidney on the front of our body with no real protection around it um okay so we play the leagues we play in are the mixed ability league so the sort of the ability count so you get disabled teams um in there and we so it's pan disability football we play in um through Transplant support themselves, their football tournament uses pretty much the same rules. So it's the main things are things like no sliding tackles because that's yeah. where the most injuries happen, which is a shame because that's the thing I'm best at. But <laughs> <laughs> sliding tackles and headers, if we play head out rule at five a side, there's no point in me playing. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't slide tackle. What's the point? No, I mean, the main difference is the sliding tackle rule. Um, and you just find when you're with the transplant community as a whole, playing just transplant football, you do find the standard of football is excellent. The commitment is total, but you do find it's a bit more relaxed. Yeah, that Saturday, makes sense. Saturday afternoon or Sunday morning. Um, Liverpool transplant play in the Liverpool Ability Counts League, which is a pan-disability league. Uh, I mean, last season we were in the same um, division as Everton's amputee team. And those guys were lethal. <laughs> I'm telling you, they come running at you with those crutches because they've got one leg. I mean, it's absolutely, it is so inspiring to watch. They had, and the guy that runs it, I can't think of his name, Steve something, was actually the England dis, uh, trans, trans, transplant, not transplant. What's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Amputee. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it was the England amputee football captain. So the standard wow. of football is amazing. You know, but as a person that's fully able-bodied, the tackling's a bit interesting because you sort of think, "I don't really want to go." <laughs> yeah. But then they hit you with those crutches, and you're like, "Right," because <laughs> they hurt. If they catch you with a crutch when they're going full whack, full speed, they hurt. <laughs> that's why that was an interesting concept. And as the other thing was, their goalkeeper was so good. It was only when I went to shake his hand after the game because I was playing goal. I realised he only had one arm. But he's an absolutely amazing goalkeeper. But I was at the other end of the pitch. I didn't have my glasses on, so I could hardly see him anyway. Um, and I went to shake his hand and realised he didn't have a right hand, so I had to shake his left hand. But you know, it's uh, unbelievable. That you know, and it's just so inspiring. But then we also play teams where there's lads which have got sort of mild learning difficulties, and they're basically young, fit lads playing football, and you sort of think. Too old for this. <laughs> Footballers, and you're just trying to chase them around. So, I mean, from a pure transplant point of view, it tends to be a bit more relaxed. It's there's no slide tackles at any level of football we play at. Um, 
some do kick-ins instead of throw-ins, but there's not there's not many differences. You don't need many differences, really. But the big one that does help us as transplantees is the uh, they're a bit uh, looser on the handball rule as well. You know, because if protect your kids, you, you stick your hand in the way. It's that simple because you're not taking one, and the refs just don't give them. So you know, as long as you're not waving at the ball, or you got you know, you can't say you're protecting your kidney. It's above your, your hands above your head. <laughs> but uh, is there any sort of uh, height rule on? how high you can kick the ball because imagine in my head now someone unleashing a volley from the edge of the box that's coming straight at abdomen height um no <laughs> <laughs> you basically get your arm in the way or move it's, uh, yeah you know, it's I know guys that will go in girl because of it and I thoroughly understand that but I'm just daft <laughs> you know I am very cautious of it but you do find when you start playing, you just want to play football, you know. Um, when you're training, everybody's very sensible. When you're in a match, we're pretty sensible. But you do play, you are committed, you do play proper football. But as I say, it's there's no head height rule. There's no major differences. The main one is there's no sliding tackling. Um, and that's probably the safest rule, to be honest. That's probably what will protect us more than getting hit by the ball. And if you do... Yeah. If the ball is coming at you, just get, keep your arm in the way. I mean, I do tend to run. When I'm defending, if I'm running, I do tend to almost hold my right arm over the area at times. You know, if I think they're getting ready to kick the ball, I instinctively sort of move my arm across. Yeah. You know, and it has hit my arm only once or twice, but it has hit my arm, but the refs don't give it because it's just oh, I'm protecting my transplant. You know, it's and they let you off. And it's not deliberate because, I, you know, I don't gain any control. It's in the back of my arm. <laughs> Probably get uh, more control of it in my big belly, to be fair, but <laughs> it's all the power out of it. But, but yeah, you know, I mean, it's, I guess within transplant football itself, not the pan disability, there's very much a common sense rule. Like yeah, I can see that. And everybody is very committed, but everybody, through, you know, fully understands that, um, you know, we've all been through the same thing. And, you know, I mean, we have guys that have got heart, heart transplants, lung transplants, and liver transplants, as well as kidney. It's not just kidney. So everybody's got different areas where they're a bit, you know, worried about, should we say. Um, I find the heart and lung transplants tend to be less fearful because <laughs> everything in there is protected by the ribcage. So, yeah. <laughs> bothered, you know. <laughs> so with it- with transport, when you're doing the pure transplant football, everyone knowing exactly what each other's been through, how important is sport and sport within the transplant community mentally for you? For me personally, it's immense. It's a massive part of keeping me going. As I was saying to you previously about the lockdown, that second lockdown, um, you know, when I just started playing my football again and I had to stop it really hit me harder than the first one. I mean, I was very disappointed that the British Games couldn't go ahead this year in Coventry, but so be it. Um, but I think you find the people that do go to the transplant sports stuff, I think pretty much everybody it is such a big thing to them from a mental health point of view, as well as a physical health. But I think quite often with sport, I mean, there's more and more of this now, but how exercise is so good for your mental well-being. 
especially since the COVID stuff, it's been really pushed. And I do find the transport community is a massive part of keeping you going, basically. I'd have, uh, me as well, I think it's been huge for me. As soon as I was able to go back to cricket training again, I can remember the net we had in February, I think, at Edgebaston. Yeah. That release that I got then from bowling, hitting the ball, was huge. Yeah. The physical and mental stress release. It's that thing as well with the, I mean, the England transport cricket team, they're just on another level, bless them. But, you know, the camaraderie within that team, as well as just physically getting out playing cricket, you know, the more nets you come to, the more, you know, you personally will get involved in it. And, you know, we are one big, I'd say happy family, but I'm not sure how happy we are. But we bicker like children all the time, but we are a big happy family, as you'll have seen from the WhatsApp group. But, uh, yeah, getting back on the pitch. I mean, I started playing, this summer I played Saturday cricket as well as Sundays. I was given a bit of a pass because I'd been locked up for four months. My wife said I could play Saturday and Sunday, and I joined the local village team who had been struggling for players. And there again, I just felt like I'm part of a family with them. Uh, the England Transport Cricket Team, we only meet up perhaps twice a year. I mean, this year we only met up once. And it could be just two, three, four times. Depends on how many games we get, obviously, through the summer. But it's like we were with each other the day before when we meet up. And everybody thoroughly understands what you've been through. And they just slit my lack of ability. I make them all laugh because of my lack of... Uh, cricketing ability <laughs> as I say without me you don't get a game because I turn up so <laughs> I don't care if I'm, if I'm number 11 I'm there we've got a game because we've got a full team I've only been to one session I, I love it already it's a, a great yeah. team to be a part of everyone's so welcoming and it's it the social aspect of cricket as well when you're there all day sitting on the boundary balcony wherever you are waiting to bat or when you've got out Socially, it's massive. How important has that been, especially in the transplant cricket team? Huge. I mean, uh, it's, I have really missed it this year. Not being, don't tell them I've said this, but being with the lads this year, I've really missed it. Um, so, therefore, playing sort of the village cricket, you know, just getting to, I mean, I had to get to know everybody because I didn't know a single person when I joined, but it was just my, it improved my mental health no end. You know, the team I play for on a Sunday, I've played for for a few years now. So I know all them. So that was like, you know, being back with your mates again. Um, and that sort of slot back into that. And the Saturday team, we just immense. But the only problem I'm finding this year is because they've cancelled the teasing. I've eaten my tea by. <laughs> 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 I've usually eaten my tea. If we're batting first things, I probably eat my tea before we start, before I go into that. <laughs> it's like, like the kid on a school trip who wants to eat it as soon as they get on the coach, you know. But, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, the whole of transplant sport, and I do find the cricket even more so, the transplant cricket, it's so good for your mental health. It's just such a good set of uh, people within that that team, including, you know, well, especially people like Joe organises it all for us, and without her we'd probably talk about having a match for years on end and never actually get round to having one. But, um, you know, without her and uh, Ashley and all the others, the partners that are involved in it, you know, it just makes us one big family. And it is, I really do miss it. 
But I say, don't tell them, especially it's fair, brass, don't tell them. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell Scott I'm missing him. I, I felt that family feel straight away as soon yeah. as I was sort of added into the group before I even got to a net. Yeah, well, at least we didn't put you off. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's necessarily a good thing being in our WhatsApp group before you couldn't meet us, to be fair, but we didn't put you <laughs> off. That's a good thing. So, on the cricket again, we've said we're both involved in this team. Mm. England and Wales, Transplant Cricket Club, who I'm sure will have many more players and people involved with it on the podcast as the episodes go on. How did it feel making your debut for that team and sort of effectively in in bizarre circumstances uh, becoming an international cricketer? It was very bizarre because I had played about four matches in, hang on, 30 years <laughs> before <laughs> I actually did that game. And um, all four of them were in the, about the previous six weeks. <laughs> so it was interesting. Um, I mean, it was an unbelievable achievement. I don't consider myself an international yet because I've only played English club teams. But, yeah. you know, uh, get a crack at the Aussies and I'll consider myself an international. But, I mean, yeah, saying you represent the England transplant cricket team is just something else. You know, I wear the hoodie sometimes. I pick up, is that England cricket? I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then the honesty bit kicks in and I sort of say, don't get too excited, I'm rubbish. <laughs> I'm one of the, the standard is very high, but I'm one of the ones that's rubbish. But it's all about promoting organ donation. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it is, you know, I mean, it's like, again, with the football as well. I represented Great Britain at 46. I became an international footballer at 46, you know, and I was like, well, there you go. <laughs> Living the dream. The strange world we live in. <sighs> and like with the football, we're talking about how transplant football was adapted to make it safer. Hmm. For people who haven't had a transplant or who are listening or don't, play cricket what sort of extra precautions extra protection have you had to wear in order to protect yourself more make it safer and also again the mental side which is huge with everything giving you more confidence um i don't tend to wear any extra pads because with the kidney being on my right side and being right-handed it's fate when I'm batting, it's my left, obviously my left that's facing the bowler. And I'm not the quickest batsman. So the chance of me having swung and it hitting me on the right hand side <laughs> unlikely at the best of times. But, you know, it's, you do feel, I mean, I'm more bothered about just hitting the ball and it not hitting me full stop rather than my kidney per se. I know a couple of left handers that have sort of adapted chest guards and various abdo guard type things from other sports and wear that to protect the kidney, and I can sort of see that. But being a right-handed batsman, I'm not a very good one. I don't tend to feel I would. Um, it would help. It probably I probably relax too much if I had any protection on it, and be less like even less likely to hit the ball. Um, I mean, I was obviously I was not rightly, but I was brought up where basically it was, you know. You've got a you've got a bat. That's that's what stops you from hitting you. <laughs> that's how I was brought up. You know, um, I will. I tend not to wear my helmet unless I'm 
you know, because I back quite low down the order, I don't tend to need a helmet by the time at the level I play at. But if I'm wearing my glasses, I will wear my helmet, and I absolutely hate wearing a helmet. I really don't like it. I'll wear one in nets just because when you're in nets, you know, we all know what it's like. You can just completely miss time when you're bowling. You know, it's more like to happen in nets that you'll miss time one and it comes yeah. out. Yeah. And it's never intentional. It just happens. You know, we all do it. We all release one a bit early and it just, you know, it's coming out by. So because of that, I do tend to uh, wear a helmet in nets. But, you know, I, I'm not, I, I reluctantly wear a helmet. You know, that's protecting your brain. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Allegedly protecting my brain. I don't know what's in there, but so I mean, I personally don't wear any extra guards, but I do know players that do. I'm so, one of them. I, right? Yep. Well, I don't blame um, you really, but I'm still learning of what works best. So I started off with a boxing abdo guard, yeah. which came up to sort of the bottom of my ribs. I had a box in it as well, which I didn't get on with because I couldn't. I couldn't really run very well. I couldn't bend down very far and I couldn't play yeah. any sweep shots, which for any non-cricketers listening involved going down on one knee and playing with the bat horizontal across your front pad. Uh, so I've changed that for the, for the summer and now I've got, it's a strange choice, um, but it works. It's a chest guard that I'm wearing upside down and yeah. the wrong way. My kidney's on the right and I'm right-handed like you. So I've got a, 
an upside down chest guard on my back hip covering it actually covers my full abdomen but it's just a lot more flexible and you can move more yeah if i remember when i when this goes out once i've edited it i'll put a photo on the instagram of me wearing both of them which if people want to see that's at transplants take on sport pod on instagram so i'll get that up anyone can see it if they want to yeah, you see, I mean, the fact I don't wear a helmet means I'm never attempting a sweet shot in the first place. <laughs> if I have a helmet on, I might do something daft and attempt to hit a sweet shot or something, and that's just not going to go well. <laughs> it's not going to end well for me. It might end well for the bowler, but it won't end well for me. So we've covered the sports that you played before you transplant. Mm-hmm. We'll move on to one of, I believe, your two new sports. We'll go with volleyball. Okay. How did that come about? Um, I tried it at the British Transplant Games. It was because of the British Transplant Games, you can do, I think they changed it, but you used to be able to do one event a day. I think it was five events, well, four events or whatever it was. Um, I think they've changed it since. But And so the first day, I think it was volleyball or badminton. I can't remember. I think it was volleyball or badminton. And I like both, but obviously badminton, you need a racket. And I, yep. go, oh, and I didn't want to have to start practicing that. So I thought, I'll turn up for volleyball. I used to play volleyball a bit at school, as you do as part of PE and stuff. Always liked playing beach volleyball on holiday. Uh, again, being a goalkeeper, I used to dive around a lot, so I used to quite like that. doesn't work as well indoors. It hurts more. Um, <laughs> but then I do it in football. So. Um, so I went along as part of the Royal Liverpool team and sort of picked it up and did all right. And then there was... Uh, what was that? That would be 2018. 2018? Yeah. Um, and then I was asked if I wanted to trial. Was I interested in that trialing for the volleyball for the Great Britain team for the World Games in 2019? And I said, yes, I was up for it. And I went and did enough to scrape in the second team. Um, I just thoroughly enjoy it and from that I've then joined Warrington Wolves Volleyball Club uh, which is about 20 minutes from where I live so I now play for them and I've sort of got into volleyball which my knees really don't like but I love it and uh, did the National Volleyball Tournament Transplant Sport for two years and got bronze the first year I think Um yeah, and I love it. And again, it's one of those sports. I've been doing it for the Worlds, for Great Britain. Obviously, I had to sort of step it up, join a club, train hard, really. And it was more of a game that I would turn up and be okay at. I'm sort of okay at most sports. I can put my hand to most sports and be okay. But, you know, obviously, they need to train to get to a level where you're beyond recreationally okay. <laughs> so... Um, so I, that's why I joined the club and did, and that became quite hard work. But, you know, thoroughly enjoy it. I enjoy the volleyball. And I sort of, sort of fell into it, really. Do you think your cricket that you've played in the past, and as you said, being a goalkeeper, you alluded to that already, do you think that added to taking to it quickly and being selected for the I think so. I've always been team? quite... Yeah. Um, I would say so, yes, because it's quite strange because I'm very, very clumsy. Um there are thoughts of whether I'm actually got have dyspraxia or not, which is far, you know, whatever I haven't. But my hand-eye coordination when it comes to sport is good. So it doesn't really, it sort of contradicts itself. <laughs> I am a contradiction. Um, 
So, you know, I, I think it did help. I mean, the thing I have got, and I keep getting told for it, more into this, I quite often, because you can, I will kick the ball back over. If I can't yeah. get through it, I'll stick my foot out and get my foot under it and flick it up. And you're allowed to do it, but they want to train it out of you because they want you to get it. They say you can get better control with your hands, but I personally feel I'm going to get better control with my feet. So um, I think the football more than the cricket, uh, but I'm used to playing sports where you've got to keep your eye on the ball. So you don't switch off. And I think that side of it with the cricket has helped. Yeah. Because the ball really quickly. Um, you know, the way the ball comes at you very, very quickly in cricket, you've really got to be on the balls, it were watching it, you've got to concentrate all the time. So I do think so, yeah. So from four years ago having a transplant to now be representing your country in three sports, which I understand okay. might be four with another sport you're taking on. Bowling. Uh, Tempe bowling, yeah. Uh, that was just again at the British Transplant Games. I was looking at. See when I did the when I do the Transplant Games, whether it's the British or the Worlds, I want to do the football because that's my sport. So that's my main. So I try and plan sports around that that mean I can be reasonably in one, hopefully in one piece when I get to doing the football. <laughs> depending on the scheduling. So I did the volleyball is up on the first day. The second day is was something strenuous or temping bowling. And the third day was football. So I so I'll do temping bowling. And I used to do temping bowling at university and you know we all I'm a recreational bowler, but I did when I was at university play a bit for the team on and off. Um so I'm an okay bowler again, another sport where I'm okay. Um so and I picked that f- because when you get selected for the world, you have to get selected for at least you have to be selected for at least one team, and then you can choose so many other sports as well. Right. So I chose okay. temping. I wasn't picked for temping bowling. I chose to do it, so I was selected that way. Uh, whereas football and volleyball, I was selected for. I've heard at the British Transplant Games from people who've been there. The bowling is a very social event, and people do it for that reason. <laughs> What oh, yes. goes on at a Transplant Games bowling event? What goes on at a Transplant Games bowling event stays at a Transplant Games bowling event. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's an absolute laugh. It is a big social um, event. Um, alcohol is partaken. <laughs> uh, I think the first year I did it, I'd had four pints before I started. Thanks to a friend of mine, Mr. Paul Reynolds. I'll put your name out there. Um, yeah. The problem is with the temping bowling is it's well organised, but because there's so many people do it, it's a minefield trying to get it organised and get it up and running straight away. So there is always a delay and there's always a bar. <laughs> you know, you know, bowling always have bars, so there's always a delay, there's always a bar. But I will say that when I was bowling for Great Britain, I didn't have a drink until I'd finished. <laughs> if I'm on international duty, I'd behave. The athlete's uh, choice. The athlete's choice, yeah. Well, it's better for you than Lucas Aid, isn't it? So. <laughs> <laughs> it's less sugary than Lucas Aid, it's better for you. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it is, you know, basically, people want to win it. People do take it seriously. There are serious bowlers there. I mean, I don't enter any competition without wanting to win, but it's more about enjoying it. But I still want to win and do as well as I can. Um, so, you know, but that first year I was. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think we'll leave it there. But, uh, yeah, and then the year after, I was a bit more sensible. 
I still had a couple, but it was a bit more sensible. But the first year, <laughs> by the end of the burn, I probably had six or seven pints by the end of the first year. And I was still doing all right. I didn't medal, funnily enough, but I was doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we know the Baldwin's very social, and you've, you've been at a few British Transplant Games, World Transplant Games. Mm-hmm. What is the atmosphere like at those events? A big celebration of all. It's a massive celebration of organ donation, transplants, you get the live donors. I mean, I know your mum's a live donor, so, you know, and they're almost revered by the rest of us, the donors. Um, and when you go to the transplant games, everybody gets a different coloured T-shirt. So if you're a competitor, you get a red T-shirt at the British Games. Spectators get, supporters get a green T-shirt and then the live donors get a pink T-shirt. So you Everyone see a live donor. So everybody knows who you are and what you, you know, what you're there for. Um, so you see somebody in a pink, you know, the first year I was there, you see somebody in a pink t-shirt, you go up to them and say, thank you. You know, even though it's, you're not my donor, thank you. You know, because it's, you know, that selfless, completely selfless act, you know, whether it's for a relative or an altruistic donor. Um, and it is one huge celebration. It really is. I mean, it's, uh, when the, when you go to your first transplant games, well, it happens every time to be fair, but both times I've been, but when you have the opening ceremony, you're all sat there, you, you come in as part of your team, you sit in the auditorium or last year at Newport, it was at Newport County's football ground. So we were in the stamp, main stamp. Um, you walk in, you do a bit of parade, everybody claps you in, all the different teams come in and then the children come in and there's not a dry eye. <laughs> And by the time the and then they also have the donor family network, who are an amazing group. Are they're all basically families of donors who are deceased, right? So my donor family could be a part of that network. They might not be, but they could be. So when they walk in, if, especially if you've had a cadaverous donor, you just you're in bits. It's absolutely, you know, it's just such an emotional situation. But it's a huge the tears of joy. But it's just a huge celebration. It really is. It's sort of four or five days of celebrating organ donation. It's fun. You meet, you make friends for life with people uh, from other teams, not just your own team. It's just, it's something else. The World Games is more serious. The British Games are for everybody, basically. Doesn't matter whether you've never played sport in your life or whether you're an elite athlete, they're for you. Uh, the World Games you have to be selected for. So it tends to be taken rightly so a lot more seriously but it is still a massive celebration and it's still a good laugh um there are stories of parties that i could tell you that are repeatable <laughs> no it's uh, you know it is it's it's that thing you know i mean i when i did the world games last year i was competing sunday monday tuesday and tuesday night was just from tuesday night to coming over on a saturday was just one long party i went and supported friends and people you know the teammates at various events and pretty much did it with a beer in the entire time. <laughs> it's just one big celebration. You meet, and the other thing is you meet people from all over the world as well. You know, I mean, that's just, there's all these people in a room that have all had a transplant from all over the world and it's just so inspiring. You know, it must be amazing. Sat there, it's inspiring to sit there and see all these other people. You know, you see some of the uh, athletes and the, the feats that they achieve and you just go, I couldn't do that when I was 15 and fully fit, never mind, 
at 40 years old and having had a transplant of some description, you know, it's absolutely amazing. It's such an amazing thing. It's I recommend it to everybody that's not had a transplant. If the British Transplant Games come near you, go and see some of it because you'll be impressed by the standard and the atmosphere. I couldn't have put it any better. I really hope I can go the, uh, next year, next summer, Leeds. Looking forward to that. Hopefully being one. It's only about an hour away from me, so yeah. I'll get the family down. That'd be good. Be good to see you. And, so, I was going to say, it's, I have my transplant lead, so it's like a home game. It'll all be representing Liverpool. It'll be a home games for me, which is <laughs> <Just> quite strange. <laughs> but, but I'm under Liverpool now, so I'll be representing them. But uh, I had my transplant at St. James's at Leeds, so it'll be like my home games, really. So I, I really hope it goes ahead because I don't want to miss it. Be a nice celebration, sort of bringing back all those memories for you. Definitely, definitely. So, a f- few more things left I'd like to talk about. Okay. You've talked about your your many national Team GB achievements. I'm gonna I'm gonna big you up here. You sent me a list. You sent me um, a bit of a rundown of your achievements. I'm gonna big you up for anyone who doesn't know what you've done. So, football. Bronze in the 2019 British Transplant Games. Bronze in the 2019 World Transplant Games. You won the Transplant National Football Tournament in a Nottinghamshire and Liverpool mixed team in 2018 and 2019. You've played for Liverpool Transplant FC since 2016. You've played for the England Wales Transplant Cricket Club. Volleyball, you've won a bronze in the National Volleyball Competition in 2018 and you played in it in 2019. You were selected for Team GB in the 2019 World Transplant Games. And bowling, you were selected in the pairs competition in the 2019 World Transplant Games, which is remarkable. It's not bad, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Keep bigging me up, I like this. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, I, I have my medals just on a bookshelf in my office, so when I walk past to see them, but you just sort of go, every time I look at them, I go, wow, you know, there are all these things I've done that, you know, I mean, I've always loved sport, but as a child teenager or whatever I was never in that you know gifted and talented group or anything you know so I've always been okay at every sport I've had a go at but I've never been good enough to sort of make it beyond school local club level so I'd sort of see these medals from you know national and international tournaments is just uh, it's something and again you know without my donor just wouldn't be possible so that's what I suppose it all comes back to that every event you do it's is a thank you and a sort of a a nod to the donor. Definitely. I do it all for my donor, really. I mean, I do the sport for myself, but every medal I win, it's it's for my donor. It's it's another thank you to, for my donor. Um, I mean, as I say, I'm not a religious person, but I thank my donor first thing in the morning and last thing at night, every single day. Um, you know, and... Again, you know, it's I say I need to invent this new word for how grateful I really am. Uh, we all are as transplant recipients for you know the gift of life. So out of all those achievements, what would you, if you could, what do you put at the top? Or maybe not your greatest achievement, but what's your your proudest moment as a transplant athlete? Um, proudest moment is representing Great Britain. How did that feel? Um, a bit surreal. <laughs> uh, I would say the proudest moment. I mean, I, you know, the volley, the football was sort of a dream come true 
to be an international footballer, say you're yeah. an international footballer. But the volleyball was the one that really got me, and that was up first, because I was it was the first time I represented Great Britain anything. But also the atmosphere was unbelievable because you got the Dutch had a massive following there, you got the Argentinians that got a massive following, the Italians. The crowd was unbelievable. It was so noisy the entire day. And the Brits, of course, as well. But, you know, it was the support, not just for their own teams, but for everybody. It was, it, the volleyball felt like I was taking part in an international tournament. Whereas the football, there were less people there watching. And it was on, you know, it was it was on a 3G pitch, you know, the standard with a fence around it. No, you know, it wasn't a football ground as such. It was on like the college, you know, um, AstroTurf pitch. And it didn't diminish it at all, but to have the atmosphere, if I could have had the atmosphere of the volleyball, the football, that would have been the ultimate. I think, Every kid's me. dream. Oh, it a lot is, of, a lot you know, of kids dream. For me, my, you know, that stepping on court for the first time as an international athlete with the crowd, I think that has to be my most treasured memory from it all. And you know, my highest achievement is the bronze medal in the football. Um, you know, and I got the assist for our goal that qualified us. So, you know, a nice, uh, somebody said it was a clearance, but it was a 30-yard pinged pass. It landed perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> it was, actually, it was a pass that came off because I kicked, I hit it. And I thought, oh, no, because I thought I'd hit it too high. And I don't know if the wind caught it or what, but it landed absolutely perfect. It was like a golf shot. You know, when you get a golf shot and it lands and it just stops dead. And he just landed, I can't remember who he was, but it landed straight on his foot and he just controlled it absolutely perfectly. And I was just like, I'll say that. <laughs> and he didn't like it. Right person. He went to the right person, but didn't do it how he was meant to do it. But we don't talk about it. But yeah, you know, I think that first, you know, that stepping onto court to start your first, in, you know, to make your international debut at a sport. I think that has to be the the memory I will have. And that's mainly because as well, not just being my debut, the fact the crowd was something else. We played the Dutch to start off with. And you know what the Dutch fans are like at football or even the cricket, any sport, the Dutch are passionate people about sport. And they love their volleyball. You know, they're a very good team. So, uh, yeah. Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure to be the the first guest on Transplant's Take on Sport. And I thought to bring the first episode to an end, I thought we could play a game that on your what you said is your main sport, which I've called the football journeyman game. So, <laughs> so before recording, we both selected a time period that we thought we knew best. Steve, mm-hmm. yours was you said was between the 90s and 2000s and mine was 2006 to the present day which I now I realize this morning is a bold claim considering that midway through the 2006-07 season I turned eight so we've each selected three footballers from the other person's chosen time period and I can't remember where I've put the stuff Once I've gone through this, we'll take, we'll take a little break and then we'll be back with the game. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> I've just realised I haven't got a clue where I've written it down. <laughs> so we've, we've got lists. Oh, God. We've got lists of 
the club history of three different players and we'll each take it in turns to read through the list of clubs that that player has played for when they played there and the number of appearances and goals that they made for that club with the other person having a guess at who the player is after each club is listed adding on an extra club after each guess I'm going to keep track of the number of guesses that we've had each and the person who successfully works out all three players in the fewest number of guesses wins Fantastic. How does that sound? Sounds like a plan. I now need to find the bit of paper I've scribbled it on because I didn't put it in my phone like I normally do. So, so we're, give me we'll a take a short break now. <laughs> and then we'll be back with the Football Journeyman game. Excellent. Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. We're back and we're ready to play the football journeyman game. Just a break. We've decided that Steve is going to go first to guess. So my first player that I've selected started his career in 1985. And the first club he played for, he played for until 1997. And it's a club that makes me smile at the moment because I've been watching a bit of Markham and Wise. So now every time I cough or someone else coughs, uh, my, my brain shouts <laughs> Arsenal. <laughs> right, 85 to 97. 85 to 97, Arsenal, 327 appearances and yeah. 78 goals. Who do you right. think it might be as an initial guess? <sighs> well, I was wondering if it was David Seymour, but I don't think he scored any goals, so it's definitely not him. <laughs> um, 85 to 97. Might be a bit early for him. Paul Mercer? You've got it in one. Oh! Champion. That is a, a very low score. Lowest score wins, remember? So Steve is currently on <laughs> one guess. thought it might have been a bit, a bit uh, early for Mercer in 85, but there you go. Paul Mercer, whose career spanned from 1985 to, I think, officially retired in 2006, but he played two games for Hanworth Villa last season. There you go. According to my trusty source. Mr. WPedia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anyone at uni, don't use it. Yeah, no, you can. You can use it, but you have to use the references at the bottom. I never thought of and that. That's where you do your research. You always use it. There's nothing wrong with using it. Just don't copy from it. Just look, read the article, go at the bottom, look at the references, and read through some of the references. And get a bit never more... even thought of that. I say you do it. And then you're not, you, you are using Wikipedia, but you're not. Just don't copy it from Wikipedia. And then just don't, just never reference it that you use Wikipedia for a start. Right then, you ready for yours? I think so. Okay, so he started his career, his first club was from 1994 to 1995, and it was Cannes. He made 49 appearances, scoring two goals. 94 I was 94 is four years before I was born um, you retired in the period you told me to take <laughs> I'm more than happy to go with it I'm hoping that the the many episodes of Premier League years comes through here I thought it might have been Cantona but that's too early Can in 94 Patrick Vieira you son sir well done oh, 
One hole. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's interesting. That is one of the luckiest guesses I've had. <laughs> Complete guess. I just knew he was he French. Retired, he retired when you were into football. He retired in 2011. Having played for various clubs, Arsenal and City mainly, Milan. So there you go. Your next one, your second one. Is it, we, we're, uh-huh. we're showing our knowledge so far. We're, we're coming across as football nerds. Yeah, I think it's more lucky guesses. But... <laughs> Your second one started his career in 1996 at PSG. He was there until 1997, playing 10 times and scoring one goal. So 96 to 97, he was at PSG. How many times did he play for? 10. And he scored one. Nicholas and You've got it in one again. <laughs> Nicholas and Elka. Oh dear. This is an unbelievable game. Nicholas and Elka, also of the ultimate journeyman of football. Yeah. Arsenal, Real Madrid, PSG again, Liverpool, Man City, Fenerbahce, Bolton Wanderers, Chelsea, Shanghai, Juventus, West Brom, and Mumbai City. Well, Retiring in 2015. Amazing. The pressure's on my second go here. It is, and if you get this, I will be impressed. (laughs) I'll get better on this one. So he started his career in 92. Right. He retired in 2011. So uh, between 92 and 94, he played for Bayern Munich A. He played 24 appearances, eight goals. Bayern Munich A, 1992. I'm gonna. I'm basing this on the '99 final, which I've watched the replay of, and I'm gonna guess, complete guess, Oliver Kahn. No, he scored eight goals. I did say 24 appearances, eight goals. You can listen back. <laughs> no, That's another one. Right. I was just thinking Bayern Munich in the early '90s. Yeah. Okay. So his next club. It's the same club because he got promoted to the first team. So between 1993 and 1998, he played for Bayern Munich. He's got 105... He didn't score 105 goals. He made 105 appearances, scoring six goals. He sounds like a defender. Um, It was there till 98? Yeah. I'm not sure I'm going to get this. Um, I don't know any Bayern Munich defenders from that I'll give you a clue. He was a defensive midfielder. He wasn't a defender. So I think more Someone midfielders. Someone into my head from watching the the class of 92, not the class of 92, the, um, the treble reunion at Old Trafford last year. Is it Lothar Mateus? No, it is not Lothar Mateus. It's another one. He started a lot earlier. He's an 80s player. He was getting on a bit in 99. One of my favourite players, Mateus. Unbelievable midfield. Okay, you might start to get it now because we're getting more into uh, the modern world. 1998 to 1999, he was at Newcastle United. He made 23 appearances, scoring four goals. Ooh. What was the dates again? 1999 to 2006. 1999 to 2006. He'd already left before he got to the 99 European final. 
Because he's at Newcastle. Newcastle until 2006. No, no, up till 1998 to 1999. He was there one season. All oh, right. Oh, 23 um, appearances, four goals, midfielder. Um, I'll keep, I've got 2006 stuck in my head now. Um, it's going to be another. No, I don't know. It's, uh, I'm, I'm, if anyone who watched a lot of football in the 80s and 90s is listening, I might get a lot of stick for being a, a millennial. Um, Robert, Laurent Robert. No. Guess. Right, this Damn. is your biggest clue. 1999 to 2006, he was at Liverpool. He has 191 appearances, scoring eight goals. Defensive midfielder. Oh, I think I know who it is. And if I'm right, I'm going to kick myself because when I was thinking of who you might have chosen earlier when I was on my walk... This name came into my head as somebody who spanned across that time period. Is it Didi okay. Haman? It is. It's you doing your magic tricks again. Well done. The Liverpool thing caught me, but it's strange. I was thinking of him earlier. It is, isn't it? It's bizarre. It's currently, you have done two guesses to get two players, and mm-hmm. I've got five guesses from my two players. So your final one. The okay. one which we think might be the same as each other <laughs> by the, the time they retired. Um, in fact, this works to make it more tense. His first club, he started his career in 1988. Uh, retired in 2008. His first club was Norwich City, where he made oh, zero yeah. appearances and scored zero goals. <sighs> Only players I can think of all play for now, so I pass. I'll give you the first one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, His next club, 1988 to 1992. He was at Cambridge United, where he made 156 appearances and scored 52 goals. That's Dion Dublin. You've got it into. (laughs) That's Dion, because his next move was to United. Yes, it was. There you go. He now now applies his trade for the BBC. He does. I didn't realise he'd started at Norwich. There you go. So it's now, it's five, well, I've got five, I've had five guesses, you've had four guesses. You've okay. already won. Yeah. So congratulations. But my, my last <laughs> one, we may as well do it anyway. Because okay. Oliver Kahn famously scored eight goals for Bayern Munich. Apparently so. Okay, so this player started his career in 1989. He retired in 2008. His first club was Arsenal, where he made one appearance, scoring zero goals. I'm going to pass rather than make myself look silly because I'm not sure if I know many people who played then. Right. So during that time, he was there at Arsenal. He went out on loan. The first time was in 1991, where he went to Fulham. He made 13 appearances and scored three goals. 91, Fulham. Oh, I, I haven't got a clue. None the wise. I'm going to guess Nigel Winterburn. No. Just throwing a name out. Again, you're a bit late on Nigel Winterburn. He was already in the first team by 89 at Arsenal. 
The second time he went out on loan was 1992. He went to Bristol City on loan. He made 12 appearances and he scored eight goals. Ooh, um, Arsenal in the 80s, 89, and then Bristol City. Yeah, one appearance, so don't. That could be a bit of a red header. You never um, Arsenal. Went to Bristol City, 12 appearances, eight goals. Not a clue again. Okay, so then in 92 93, he moved permanently to Bristol City, 29 appearances, 12 goals. I don't think I know any Bristol City players other than the ones who oh, you know play this now. <laughs> it's going to be, be an obvious one, isn't it? It's very obvious. That's why I picked him. <laughs> oh, I... oh, no. No. Is it... Ian Wright. No. No, he was a hero. He were, he succeeded at Arsenal, didn't he? Right, okay. Oh, now we're getting to it. Here. No, no. He never goes back to Arsenal. So forget about Arsenal. You might get it off this one. 93 to 95, he was at Newcastle United, where in 70 appearances, he scored 55 goals. Ooh. Premier League years, speak to me. Uh, so 95, Newcastle. 93 to 95, he was at Newcastle. He scored 55 goals in 70 appearances. So he's a forward. I'm guessing. Yep. Oh, he is. 95. Uh, I'm going to have to throw a name out somewhere. Who could that be? It's not it's too early for Shearer because he never went. He was still there later Shearer on. Shearer actually Shearer replaced him. Oh, it, no. Is it, um, <laughs> Les Ferdinand. Nope. Think about what this podcast's about. Oh, I've got it now. I've what? got it. Andy Cole. It was Andrew Alexander Cole. <laughs> I never knew he was in Bristol City. Yeah, it's where he first came to the uh, attention of everybody. And then, of course, wow. in 95 to 2001, he moved to United, scoring 93 goals in 195 appearances. And of course, now he's had a kidney transplant, so that's why I picked him. Andy Cole, everyone, every kidney transplant, well, footballing, football playing kidney transplant recipient, I presume he's an inspiration to everyone. Definitely. I saw him play in the uh, reunion game we were talking about. Didn't, wasn't on for long, I presume because of the, the transplant. Yeah. But made sure we gave him a big round of applause, big cheer when he came on. Oh, got a great. lovely reception. Yeah. He um, came, because the World Transplant Games were in Newcastle last year, he did a bit of promoting for it. And he came, and I missed the training session because I was playing volleyball, but he came on the Sunday. He spent the training session with the Great Britain Transplant football team in the coaching session and had a chat to him. And then he came into the volleyball because it was at the same site and I had a chat to him for about 10, 15 minutes, to be honest. In fact, I got told off because I was too uncut. <laughs> <laughs> and I was simply chatting, like, chatting to Andy Cole, <laughs> So a uh, good chat to him. So he's a, he's a lovely, lovely guy. I've met him a couple of times actually, but he's a lovely, lovely guy, and we had a really nice chat. And he he actually said he was in awe of us transplant recipients because of what we were doing. And I sort of thought at that point, you know, he has given me so many days of joy <laughs> over the years. 
<laughs> watching him scoring goals at Old Trafford and beyond. And there's him saying how he's inspired by me and all the other transplant recipients. It's like, that'll do. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to read his book. Yeah. I think it'd be an interesting yeah. view. And I'd obviously love him on the podcast. So Definitely. Well. If anyone knows Andy Cole, could you point him in my direction? Take <laughs> on Sport Podcast. Andy Cole, the star of the game, of our little game there, which finished. Yeah. Um, it was just Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I've let myself down. Just say I won. <laughs> Steve ran out as a a very clear winner with four guesses to guess three players. Dion Dublin, I thought, might have tripped you up a bit more. Uh, I had, and I'm going to have to count these, as that many? To guess my three players, I took 11 guesses. First one was in one as well, so the last two yeah. were a bit problematic. To be fair, Haman was a bit of a left-field one, but the fact that you actually thought about him earlier, you know. <laughs> good get, I enjoyed it, though. If we get any other football as well. Good game. I enjoyed that one. Any other football players, look at the clubs of ex-players and be prepared when you come on. Because <laughs> you've got four to beat. <laughs> if you're three, I'll be impressed. <laughs> Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, being the first guest. Uh, I've loved it. I've learned things that I'll take with me going forward, dealing with a transplant, living with a transplant. One last question, which I'm going to ask everyone who comes on. What's one piece of advice you'd give to someone facing a transplant? Stay positive and don't give up hope. I couldn't have put it, it any happen. better myself. I think that's the key. Steve, thanks again for coming on. Really enjoyed it. Uh, my name's Lewis Daniels. This has been Transplant's Take on Sport, and I will see you in the next one with another guest. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.